0: Welcome to Hub & Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub & Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. This is Patrick Rao, NGI's Director of Strategy and Research. For the next 20 minutes or so, I want to take you through some of our takeaways from the recently concluded third quarter 2021 U.S. natural gas uh, earnings season for North American focused companies. And what I really want to do is maybe give an idea of what Shale 4.0 is going to look like. I mean, we have seen uh, folks out there who say, hey, version 1.0 was a great land grab. Version 2.0 was going out, spend cash flows to grow production like crazy. And this most current iteration of 3.0. Is one that's marked by capital discipline, controlled growth, repairing balance sheets, and returning capital to shareholders. And it's very much an environment where if any publicly traded producer materially increases its capex or production or rigs, watch out stock price because it's likely going to get hit. Well, what will version 4.0 look like? And to get a view on that, I'd like to walk us through the lens of some of the most asked about and talked about subjects during third quarter conference calls. And those particularly were oil field service cost inflation, plans to return cash to shareholders, and Biden's energy plan with a particular focus on carbon capture and sequestration. I'm also going to do a quick review of the various mid US gas plays, as that's proved popular in some of our prior iterations of this earnings review. So, with that, let me dive in and start talking a bit about inflation. And the angle there from Wall Street analysts is to gauge what producers' capex plans might be next year. Halliburton and Schlumberger, they both let off third quarter earnings by estimating that North American EP capex spending would rise by 20% in 2022. Now, that's a really big increase in spend. So, well, the natural question is, is that going to lead to a commensurate rise in U.S. natural gas production next year, especially given higher commodity prices? And the answer is a resounding probably not. We counted 16 different companies that gave their view on 2022 oil field inflation next year, and the consensus among those was a range of 3% to 20% with a beating of 10%. And the biggest reason for the price increases are steel, labor, and fuel. So look, if inflation is going to rise by 10% next year, just using loosey-goosey math, that's going to cut out half of that 20% increase in CapEx spending. So in other words, half of that is just going to be to make up for higher prices. Now, one of the reasons for higher oil and gas prices now is a general lack of investment and expiration in recent years. So we got to figure that a greater portion of 2022 CapEx spend is going to go towards that, which is going to mean less on completion and production. So that brings that 10% net number down a little bit more. Finally, U.S. duck accounts are running very low and currently stand near their low points since the EIA began tracking such data in late 2013. Now, continued productivity gains will probably help a bit, but overall, producers are going to have to spend more on drilling next year than they did this year, and that's going to cut into that 20% figure as well. So overall, we note that the EIA expects that U.S. gas production is going to rise 3 BCF a day next year, which would be roughly a 3% increase in percentage terms, and that is obviously well below what a 20% increase in CapEx may have otherwise suggested. So despite the surge in CapEx, we think the United States is going to very much remain in maintenance mode next year when it comes to natural gas production. Turning to capital, returning capital to shareholders, excuse me. Now that U.S. producers are generating free cash flow, the question becomes, what options do they have to do with it? And I'm speaking primarily to our financial-based subscribers and listeners here now, but there's certainly some good takeaways for the physical market here as well. But paying back debt right now, that's the overall number one priority for U.S. gas-focused producers. And we note that producers have been doing an excellent job at that. Among the 42 different U.S. focused publicly traded independent producers that we monitor, we see that the median net debt to EBITDA ratio among them is 1.6 times, and that's versus 2.2 times for the entire S&P 500. We believe that producers as a whole, they're actually trying to get those leverage ratios down to 1.0 times. And if they keep buying back debt, and if oil and gas prices remain firm and hold, we think they should be able to do that sometime in the 2023 time frame. Look, that's not bad for an industry that was racked with bankruptcies just a year and change ago. But what happens after they reach that debt goal? Are producers going to stop buying back debt? Eh, probably not for one if commodity prices tank those leverage risks are going to rise again and that's going to require more debt buybacks now interestingly and rather importantly several companies producers are talking about maybe getting their debt all the way down to zero most prominently among those being pioneer resources and that actually kind of flies in the face of traditional financial theory which argues that companies they maximize value by minimizing their weighted average cost of capital and typically to do that you got to have some debt why because interest payments are tax deductible but maybe this line of reasoning just doesn't hold as true for emp companies these days for one many us producers have net operating losses that will shield them from paying federal cash taxes for a few more years Look, there's just no tax shield on interest payments if you aren't paying taxes anyway. Another thing is that oil and gas is a cyclical industry. Companies usually aren't paid for hoarding cash because investors can do that themselves. But given commodity price volatility, which we think is only going to grow worse in the new environment of renewables, and given the fact that financial institutions are becoming less willing to lend to fossil fuel companies, Perhaps it does make sense for more oil and gas producers to hold more cash. Look, doing this would allow them to acquire assets on the cheap during the next downturn, either be it companies, other companies, or their very own stock. This certainly seems like quite a prudent thing to do. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see how the investment community treats this, especially as more generalist investors enter our space, which are investors who are more used to looking at the old way of The way you maximize value is to minimize your whack. Now, another popular option for giving back cash is by buying back shares, and many producers are doing that right now. Now, they can't do this forever, obviously, otherwise they'll become privately held. And if they're privately held, they can then turn and spend whatever the hell they want on drilling and theoretically raise production spending to the stratosphere again. But we see no imminent danger of that happening, at least not in mass as the median float, and float is the percentage of outstanding shares that are available to be purchased by the public, the median float for the 42 producers that we look at in the United States, it's 93%. So there are plenty of shares available to buy back, but the issue is doing so when prices are high or at the top of the cycle, and we think that's starting to become a problem. As such, producers are simply gonna hold cash, or see some producers are gonna hold more cash until that cycle reverses. But on the other hand, there are going to be some producers that are likely going to continue to buy back shares anyway, regardless of market conditions. And they might do this for kind of a sneaky reason. Not so long ago, producer management teams were compensated for share adjusted production growth. So they were incentivized to grow production like crazy. Today, they can achieve the same thing by holding actual production flat, but by buying back shares. So we think that there is an element of that going on. Now, another thing producers can do with excess cash is to invest in the drill. bit, But as we all know, publicly traded companies, they're not really being paid to grow right now. The overwhelming majority of rig additions these last year and change have come from the privates. M&A, that's another option for them. And that actually has been a very popular option in recent quarters and one we expect is going to continue. Finally, there are Dividends. Base dividends seem to be the preferred choice of most producers right now, as those generally signal confidence about the cash generating ability of their physical reserves. But variable and special dividends are becoming much more in vogue these days. Part of the allure of a variable dividend is companies simply don't have to worry as much about getting ahead of their skis and creating a dividend that they're going to have to slash in the future, like what happened last year because of COVID. So who's more likely to pay variable and special dividends? It's an excellent question, and the answer to that is still very much evolving. Seven of the 42 U.S.-focused producers in our coverage universe either are paying or about to start paying a variable dividend. Now, we looked at a lot of different things to see what they all have in common, And really, the only thing we see among those seven is that, one, they already pay an existing base dividend, and two, they each have a market cap of at least $4 billion. So right now, to us, those seem to be the starting point for these types of dividends. The good news is that both Pioneer Resource and Devon, which are the first two companies to declare a variable dividend, noted that they are getting more interest from generalist investors and yield-focused investors. And that, quite frankly, was one of the main goals of their deciding to do this. In fact, all energy companies, publicly traded companies in the energy patch have been trying to win back journalist investors in recent years. So this may be a potential way to do it. It's still early. The jury's out, but it's something that we're going to watch. So anyway, I realized that was an awful lot of financial related stuff in there. I apologize for that. But just know that the more that the industry gives cash back to investors, the less it will be able to grow through the drill bit, everything else being equal. Plus, how producers decide to give cash back and yield clues as to what management thinks about its medium to long-term prospects. So this is absolutely something that bears watching and that we at NJ will continue to do in the quarters ahead. Okay, the third most talked about topic during calls this quarter, that was Biden's Build Back Better Act or his energy plan. And overall, the general responses for companies here were of guarded optimism, under the proviso that there's still much that needs to be sorted out. There are several provisions to this bill, but a particular interest to the analysts this quarter was the carbon capture and sequestration portion, as the bill would extend 45 Q tax credits and possibly raise them from $50 to $85 per metric ton, as well as adding a direct pay option. Now, the majority of those management teams ask feel that $85 is essential for making carbon capture and sequestration economic in the U.S., or more economic in the U.S., and most favor the direct pay option. We note that CCUS, this is going to be a very competitive space, and most industry pundits believe returns here are going to be less than 10%, and that's quite below those for traditional oil and gas investments. Now, I don't think that anybody really disagrees that CCUS isn't necessary to reach the Paris goals, but just not everybody in the natural gas supply chain is going to be motivated to chase these lower returns. The bill also introduced a tax credit for hydrogen production, and that was met very favorably, but perhaps maybe not as favorable as the proposed 15% alternative minimum tax. Now, there is no immediate reaction to this from most, with they simply saying that there's a lot to sort out here. But most of those players noted they still have net operating losses and therefore likely won't be federal cash taxpayers for a few more years anyway. Also potential good news from the bill was that uh, it's the potential to allow renewables to become part of MLPs. And that could have a direct financial impact on current natural gas midstream companies that remain in that structure. Practically all of them have been investigating hydrogen and renewable opportunities anyway, but their being able to include them could boost their financial well-being. And of course, having happy and healthy midstream companies is great news for all producers. So for more on this, please continue to read the pages of Natural Gas Intelligence as our editorial team will be focused on these developments in the month ahead. Now, I'm about to whip around into our regional coverage here, but before I do that, I just want to make one quick note about responsibly sourced natural gas, or RSG. This is something that continues to gain steam. We estimate that there have been roughly 20 long-term RSG deals signed in North America now, and we can envision a time in the not-too-distant future where becoming RSG-certified becomes necessary just to conduct business at all. Now, if those packages of gas become tradable, then RSG attributes may become a thing, and that can impact how we and other price reporting agencies calculate our natural gas spot market indexes. So if you'd like to speak to us about that, please feel free to reach out to us at prices at naturalgasintel.com. Okay, now for the regional whip around, let's start in the Appalachia. Now, as a takeaway capacity goes, so too goes overall production in this region. We know that there are still a few minor projects that are coming online, such as Lighty South. Nexus just conducted an open season on their system recently, but the big shooter drop, of course, is still MVP. Equitrans maintains an in-service date of next summer, But we do know of one prominent industry analyst who believes that that may not happen, in fact, until closer to the start of next winter. And as reported by NGI this summer, MVP is looking to become a carbon neutral line by purchasing more than 150 million of carbon credits over the first 10 years of the system. So cynics may ask, is this just a last ditch effort to get this built? But we think a bigger, more thematic question is, is this the way to get any major natural gas pipeline project built in the US going forward? We note that DTM Midstream is planning a carbon neutral extension of its LEAP pipeline in the Haynesville. So this may be the new way of doing business. Certainly something we're gonna be watching. The other thing that may cap production growth in the Appalachia is the degradation of core inventories. And that's something that several Appalachia producers noted on their third quarter calls. This could be more of an issue with private producers since those in general tend to have lesser quality acreage, everything else being equal. Now, several land contract drillers noted that both publics and privates have been high-grading lately, and privates certainly have been adding rates at a much more robust pace than their public peers. So it could just where it will be the case that the privates could be exhausting their cores all the more right now. Now, we're not there yet, but it could be that some companies are going to have to make up this production difference in time, and investors of publicly traded producers may have no choice but to accept that. Switching over to the Haynesville, sticking with the gas theme, we see that several operators noted that they're accelerating their 2022 production activity into this year. And there are a number of potential catalysts to help prompt growth in the region. For one, Williams just lowered their Haynesville gathering rates for Chesapeake Energy, which is important because Chesapeake Energy is the biggest producer now in the area, now that they've acquired vine Except for them now, they're not even the biggest producer anymore. Southwestern has t- overtaken them with their acquisition of Geo Southern. We've also seen Paloma partners recently by Goodrich. So all this m a activity in the area, it's not being done so people can sit in their hands. It's being done, we think, to help to accelerate production in the area. Fortunately, there's more pipeline takeaway capacity on the way. Enterprise Products expects to complete its Acadian, Hainesville, and Gillis natural gas lateral expansion this quarter, and they're working on a project that would expand Acadian one more time, this time by another 400 MMCF a day. As mentioned before, you've got DTM Midstream announcing in September that they're working on a one BCF a day carbon neutral expansion of their LEAP system, and that would be the first of its kind in North America in terms of getting a RSG or, or, or carbon-neutral gas from land to water. Overall, Kendall Morgan believes that the Haynesville may need another BCF or so a day in takeaway capacity by 2526, which would be driven by LNG, and we certainly expect a few more FID announcements in the Gulf of Mexico to start rolling off for LNG projects next year. Switching to the Permian, which has been responsible for the majority of year-over-year rig ads. There are currently 280 rigs working the region versus 161 a year ago. Hey, things are so hot right now that Apache noted that the Alpine high is starting to look better. It's you know amazing what higher prices and better completion designs will do. Overall, we think that the conventional wisdom was that the Permian was going to need more takeaway capacity in 2025, But Kinder Morgans noted that based on their conversations with customers, they have moved that up a year. Similarly, energy transfer thinks that in two to three years, Waha Basis is going to blow out again, meaning that the region will need another pipeline at that time. I mean, it's getting to the point where someone actually asked Williams about Blue Bonnet. Now, not that that's a bad project. It's just that we had pretty much left that one for dead a few years ago. Williams said they're actually looking into it, but they expressed a preference for a demand pull rather than a supply-push project. Now, one simple solution would be simply to convert one or more existing liquid pipelines to natural gas, since we believe the Permian is flush with over-piped builds on the liquid side. Now, that may be a quicker decision, but just bear in mind that liquids pipelines tend to have smaller diameters and therefore won't provide the same long-haul capacity as a new-build solution would, and that may factor into the equation here. Now, an even easier solution than that would just be to simply use all the capacity from Waha to Mexico on the pipelines that CFE commissioned. Doing that would be like adding a new 1.5 BCF a day pipeline in and of itself. But that is likely something that's not going to happen, we think, until Andres Manuel López Obrador is out of office. And that's something that's not going to occur until late 2024 by the time we're going to need that new capacity. So that's likely not a solution. So anyway, there's lots of potential volatility coming out of the Permian, which you can monitor via the Waha curve we publish in our forward look service. Switching to the Bakken here real quick. Now, maybe it's just us here, but it sure does seem like the Bakken is turning into a large ATM machine to fund growth in other parts of the world. Devin noted they expect the Bakken to generate 700 million in free cash flow for them this year, which they can use to fund other producing regions. Hess is increasing activity there to fund its operations in Guyana. Comstock sold its acreage to Northern Oil and Gas to fund the Haynesville. Diamondback sold its properties at Oasis to fund the Delaware. And now you've got Continental Resources, arguably the granddaddy of all Bakken companies, who just bought Pioneer Energy's Delaware assets for $3.25 billion. And we reckon that they're going to fund that growth with cash flows from the Bakken. Kinder Morgan, they noted that the Bakken, it's been a little bit slower than anticipated in bringing on new wells, with some producers saying they're going to push things out into 2022. So, so far, I've framed up the Bakken like it's a problem area, but we think just the opposite. We actually think that their better times are likely ahead in the Bakken, particularly from a natural gas standpoint. Hess and One Oak, they've both added gas processing capacity in recent months. And Enderplus noted that following the Dakota access expansion to 750,000 barrels in August, they see 400,000 barrels of spare capacity in the region. The thinking here being that the region's going to be overpiped for a number of years now, so that should help lower Bakken price differentials, which in turn should help to spur drilling in the area. The flaring in North Dakota, it's now down to 6%. But that should get closer to zero in time, and the oil and gas ratio in the Bakken continues to climb, something that we understand could add another BCF or solar production from the region. Overall, One Oak thinks that their Bison uh, Pipeline Project and or Northern Border Expansion Projects are going to be necessary in the next two to three years. And we note that Pembina is currently evaluating whether to expand Oxable and is possibly looking for ways to get more Bakken gas down to the Gulf Coast. So Overall, we see some pretty good potential to grow gas in the Bakken, with more gas heading to the Chicago area and possibly beyond over the next few years. Finally, let me wrap with uh, the Eagleford. This is an area that by itself wasn't mentioned all that prominently during third quarter calls, but we note the area has been experiencing something of a revival in recent quarters. We see that they have added 19 rigs down there over the last year, which on an absolute basis is second most only to the Permian. The Eagle Ford is home of uh, EOG Resources Dorado Play, which is their new premium play, and something that has very low break-even costs. To them, they believe that break-even costs there are lower than that of the Hainesville and the Marcellus. But maybe the hottest area in the Eagle Ford isn't even the Eagle Ford, it's the Austin Chalk. We see that Chesapeake, Silver Bow, Murphy, and Apache, they all noted that they're delineating the area and are quite pleased with their initial results. Adding supply in South Texas would be good news from an exporting standpoint, since the region, of course, is a major supplier to both Mexico and to LNG liquefaction facilities. Okay, so to quickly conclude, and thanks for hanging in there, what might Shale 4.0 look like? But well, we at NGI can envision an environment where free cash flow generation will be king, and investors will have lots of flavors to choose from in terms of how producers return that cash. U.S. natural gas production will continue to be more top-heavy, as consolidation means there will be fewer producers, but with more of them topping the 3 BCF-a-day production level. Investors will continue to hold producers to maintenance mode or low-levels of production growth, but they should be more forgiving of certain individual producers growing more than the industry average if those producers are doing it to make up for production declines elsewhere. Adding rigs under the right circumstances shouldn't be a death knell for the stock prices of publicly traded producers going forward under those circumstances. Traditional financial thinking may be altered for oil and gas producers, as holding excess cash likely won't be viewed as negatively given the cyclicality and increased volatility of the business. And finally, if you want to sell or move natural gas in the United States, you're going to have to do it in an environmentally acceptable manner. That's all I have for today. I know that was a lot, but thank you very much for listening. We always appreciate it. We wish everyone a very safe and happy holiday season and look forward to talking to you soon.
0: Take care. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.